It's like the bite that slowly takes its effect. All right, welcome to your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris. I'm Yurdlich. And we are here, part two, with Doug Jones again. Hello again. Glad to be back. I I want to say this in the beginning of the last episode, and I totally forgot, but one of my favorite things uh, that someone has said on this podcast since we've been doing it was yours. Mm. And it was the, the authenticity thing. Oh, yeah, that, that, I remember that. Um, Gosh, and now I feel stupid because I'm blanking on it. It's like my favorite thing. But um, if at the root, authenticity is the truth, then hypocrisy is a lie at its root. Right. And I just, that always just stuck with me. I, I really like that. But we are here, which is a great tie-in because we're talking about the serpent who came in and lied mm-hmm. to Adam and Eve. So if you don't know what we're talking about from here on forward, go back and listen to the last episode because that's all the context you're going to need to go forward. I'm I'm raising my hand because if people are going back to listen to the first episode and I wanted to find a spot to put it in just because I had my anxieties coming up. I said something about Isaiah 14. Like, I'm pretty sure it's there. It's not. It's Isaiah 27. And that wasn't even the context of everything. I heard you talking about Ezekiel 28 and uh-huh. that's the king of Tyre. And like, that's where the shining one is. Yes. So that was more of the context of Ezekiel 28 with the shining one. Isaiah 27 just uh, mentions Leviathan as the fleeing serpent. Mm. So then there's even a cool context that I don't know. If how this one will go, because if we look at the serpent, Leviathan as the chaos monster, and going back to chaos monsters invading Eden and that kind of thing, ancient Near Eastern context, that's kind of fun to get mm-hmm. into. But um, get the Gilgamesh epic is yeah, very interesting on that. Yeah, the Gilgamesh, exactly. So, you yes. ever sit somewhere and people are talking and you just have that look on your face like you know what they're saying? And you're like, I'm <laughs> oh, part all of this the conversation. I got it. Yeah, that was me right now while you guys were talking about Gigglemesh and all the other thing. I'm like, mm. Dude, that was me at the beginning of last episode when you guys like, hey, remember stuff oh, in yeah. movies? I'm like, yes, <laughs> movies. I've heard of these things. Yeah, That's but then right. you made us feel bad again because you're like, I don't really do movies because I'm too busy studying the Bible. Like, I want, well, no, we I'll suck. watch them. I just don't we remember suck. them. So it's just like, I should have been studying the Bible. because I saved that no. mental storage for the Lord. I just want more Bible in my brain. Speaking well, of scary movies, we saw last night, and then we're going to get into everything or whatever you're going to say, Doug. Yeah. We saw the original Dracula with Remy and Reed. That and old, uh, the black and white. The old uh, black and the, white. Is that the Nosferatu one? Uh, no, I think that's the Bell Lugosi one where oh. it's, it's just the old original Dracula movie. And because Remy's been really into wanting to watch scary movies, it's a thing. Even Casey has joined in with Remy's us. Remy's really and, into that too. Yeah, they, they, she really loves it. So I was like, hey, let's go to the classics because I don't have to worry about what's happening. Right. And she really liked it. I, I was a, fell asleep almost a couple of times, but she really enjoyed it. But when we were talking about like menacing evil, that the eye look that he gave people. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Yes, I'm remembering it now. And Justine yeah. kept laughing at it. She's like, what's this stupid face? And I'm like, no, that's the face of terror. Like in 1938, whenever that came out, that terrified people. So yeah. anyways, go ahead. That, that was just a side note. It's, it's, it's really interesting that we see this, this um, a very similar story to this snake that steals life sort of motif that we find in Genesis 3, you know? And Gilgamesh is an example where you've got, you know, he, he finds this, this plant that grants eternal life and that it's stolen by a serpent. It's, there's very interesting ties to other texts. It makes you wonder, like, huh, seems like in ancient literature there, there are certain things that recur Sometimes around the world, not even just locally. Sometimes, the and it gets for, for the flood is an excellent example where you're like, wow, it almost either coincidentally a lot of cultures happen to have said something almost identical, or there is some shared common human memory that has made its way down through the generations that is is coming out in different in different ways, and this is definitely one of those. And that actually brings up an interesting point about this story. And you know, there there some 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 will say that like. You know, you read about Talking Snake and stuff like that, and they'll sort of relegate Genesis 3 to the world of, like, myth and symbolism. Mm -hmm. But it's so clear, just biblically speaking, that these are real people, and these are real events, because they're always referred to by other writers of the Bible as very real. I mean, there's even an unbroken genealogy linking Jesus all the way back to Adam. So there's there's every reason to believe that, at least in the minds of uh, the gospel writers— Paul himself, that 
Adam and Eve were real people, and we should take these events as having really happened. I, I do not subscribe to this idea that Adam's really just an archetype, and the and the, the serpent is really a symbol for temptation and stuff like that. I think it's a heck of a lot more than that. I mean, in retrospect, you can you can look at it that way, but this is a very real thing that happened. It had very real consequences, and ultimately, we needed a very real savior to come and undo these things that, that happened. But Yeah, it's so much of the Bible I kind of look at it as like, it's the myth that's true. Right. But it's like it can be both. Yeah. And how we were talking last time about just it's so condensed. Mm-hmm. So it can almost say, make it seem more mythological because like how do we get all of the things that need to be passed along in a narrative form because people were telling these stories before Oral they tradition, were written down right. and all of that. So it's just like that's how things were passed along. And yeah, so I can get that it can have that flavor to it because, yeah, the Bible is archetypal of other people telling stories. The Bible is borrowed from so often, just the motifs that are in it. And so, yeah. yeah, that almost pushes it up into the clouds. Like it's this ethereal, mythical thing, but it can also be rooted in very true reality. Well, we left off um, about to go into Genesis 3 6. And we got 3 6 to 20 something to get through. It's going to move faster. I, <laughs> I promise. I promise it's going to move faster. You know, we talked about the lie from the serpent, and then this is kind of where we get down to the nitty-gritty where the the bad things really start to happen. And verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, basically it's like, now when she looks at the tree, it's like, it's all good. It's like, it looks good. It's supposed to give me like these superhuman, this, this, this divine enlightenment and all this stuff. And it says, She took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. And this is kind of the the thing that is often pointed to as like the as proof positive that Adam was present during this whole whole thing. That is very commonly accepted. I, I'm going to push back on that ever so slightly here, only because I think there's some indication in the text that he was not present for the conversation, but was present for the eating of the fruit. And it would kind of deal with some of the questions about like, if Adam was st- like, what are you doing, Adam? Like, you're standing there and this whole thing is unfolding. You know, this conversation is happening that's clearly detrimental. And Adam would have been well aware that like, this is a problematic conversation <laughs> here. And he just sits there silent. And again, you could chalk that up to the text just doesn't say. Like all of us in 2021 are just like, yeah, come on, let's look at that. Adam, you're <laughs> like, you're falling down on your job and all this. Stuff. Just, yeah. yeah. How great for us to be in our position, look back and be like, yeah, you're right there. Yeah. It's a total armchair quarterback situation. We and do I, it with Eve. I we also do it with think Adam. too, when you were talking about like the, the slinking of the context, when you look at it, cause I'm, I'm rereading the scripture here. And when he says, uh, you'll know good and knowing good and evil, we immediately think that, okay, then she grabbed the fruit and did everything. But again, it doesn't really say then, it says when she saw. So it could have been over That's time. Right. This thought could have just been sitting in her brain for exactly. months, years, weeks, days, hours. They could have been deliberating together for a very long time. I mean, this is how temptation works. It usually starts as a little flicker. Yes. Right? And then it grows and grows and grows. And they might have kind of been nervously thinking about it, like just kind of walking past the tree maybe a little more often than they normally would, just looking at it. The serpent's long gone by this point. He comes back eventually when the curses come. But you can, you can kind of almost see them, like, like children, kind of warming up to that forbidden thing. And like, what if we just hold it? Like, maybe we just touch it. If it feels icky, we won't eat it. Or, oh, I don't know. It kind of feels good, though. Like, what if we just smell it, you know? And like, so you can almost picture this happening over a longer span of time. The text presents it in a way, back-to-back sentences that make it feel like, oh, the conversation's over. Mm-hmm. Like, well, let's eat the fruit, you know, N- yeah. no problem here. And then they go for it. So there's a time span here that is a possibility that's to be considered. Here's the thing that tears it for me, though, about Adam not being there. In a moment, we're going to get to the curses. And when God pronounces his curse on Adam, he says, because you listen to the voice of your wife— and ate from the tree, which I told you not to eat. You know, cursed is the ground because of you, and he goes into it. If Adam had been present for the conversation with the serpent, he would not be guilty of listening to the voice of his wife. He would be guilty of listening to the voice of the serpent, just like Mm -hmm. Eve was. So again, it's not ironclad, but I think there is some, at least enough in the text to make us think, we can't just take for granted that he was present for this conversation. That would explain his silence in the conversation. just wasn't there. Yeah. I could see that, but then I'm going to armchair it and go, if they had these conversations and then he sent his wife 
to then go and eat it first. <laughs> like, fine, you want to tell me about this good fruit? Go and grab it yourself. You take a bite. <laughs> well, I don't know that uh, that would be a really I mean, dirty was, way to do it. If I was thinking about my marriage, I'd be like, hey, Justine, why don't you go first? You know, yeah. so... But that's me, sinful natured man already. So, yeah, yeah, I'm putting that in there. I definitely joke. think there's no doubt that they ate the fruit together because they seem to experience the the effects of the fruit together at right. the same time. And and again, like remember throughout the rest of the Bible, with the exception of maybe in in First or Second Timothy, where where Paul makes a comment about Eve being the one who gave into the temptation of the serpent. Almost everywhere else, it's the sin of Adam yeah. that is remembered and is treated as the core problem. So uh, this doesn't remove any of the culpability from Adam, not, not, by a, not by a long shot. Clearly, the two of them did this together. They made this decision together, and they, they sinned together, and they fell together. I just think that it, it's not exactly good that Adam was there for the, for the chit-chat. Whatever the case is, you know, the serpent has told his lie, which has a very strong—the the concept of like a venom is a very strong metaphor for what happens here. You know, it's like the, it's like the bite that slowly takes its effect, you know? It's like, ah! So the lie is told. And then we have every reason to believe, or at least good reason to believe, that that temptation grew with time, and eventually they, they gave in. And then verses 7 through 8 said, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves waist coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And, uh, you know... When I read verse 7, they knew that they were naked. It's kind of like, you're just figuring that out. Like, they'd been naked forever, and yet this is like the first moment of recognition that they're exposed. And you see, like, that childlike innocence gone, you know, in an instant. And it's funny, like, even with kids, especially little kids, like, they just want to be naked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, if, if you, anybody who's raised little ones knows that unless you kind of enforce clothing, you're going to have little naked buns running around the house. And even our son's like try, trying to get him to, you know, to keep, clo- like he'll keep his underwear on. But it, it's like, you'll just see him running through the house with his underwear all the time, especially if it, the weather's warm. And you can see that there is a, in childhood, there is a natural acceptance that nakedness is the, the normal state for a person to be in. But with time, we sort of train that out of our kids and, and we develop this sense over time that, that our bodies ought to be hidden, that we have to, we have to go through this process of covering, hiding, decorating our bodies. You know, some people think that there's something specifically sexual about the fall because of their desire to cover their private areas. I don't don't know that there's any need to believe that in the text, but they definitely became aware of vulnerability and imperfection. And there was probably what felt to them, my guess is just sort of a general sense of unworthiness and shame that drove them. Mm -hmm. Because you notice they don't just cover their privates. They do that, but then they also run into the bushes and they disappear in the trees. And clearly, they're not just trying to hide their private areas. They're trying to hide their very selves from the presence of God. You know, he said, I heard you walking, and so I ran, is what he'll he'll say in the the next sentence there. So there's there's something definitely more generalized about what they're feeling than just covering their private areas, because they they just want to— it's like they want to just disappear. It's like, I just want to hide utterly. Like, I want to hide my whole self. Well, yeah, last time, Chris, you were talking about, why fig leaves? Like— you know, those yeah. interior, whatever, it's just like, think of those ghillie suits the army people put on, like, yeah. you become one with the trees, and like, you know, let me put on leaves, and then I'll go hide in the <laughs> yeah. trees, just like, yeah. you can't see me anymore. Yeah. It's funny that they, they, they mimic the snake in that moment. Oh, they that's a t- good point. They, they hide, they camouflage, they disappear into the trees, that they had always walked with this innocent confidence, you know, like a child. A child will walk right out into the neighborhood naked you know, without any sense of shame, at least below a certain age, you know, but in this moment, they sort of take this tactic of, of hide and stay undercover, don't be seen. So there's a, uh, there's a weird moment there where they're already showing some of the same behaviors as the devil. Anyway, we get to uh, verses nine through 11. It says, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. He said, I hid myself. He's hiding his whole self. And he said, this is what God says to him. I don't know why it is that this question just like is so heartbreaking to me. God said to him, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? I like Donald Miller unpacks that question from the Lord. I think it's in Searching for God Knows What, his book. 
And he, he said that this question is like asking, who told you something was wrong with you? Mm-hmm. What makes you feel like your nakedness is an issue? Of course, God has always known that they were naked and they've always been naked and there was been no, there's been no issue until now. But there's clearly a sense of shame that has come over them. And of course, God knows the answers to all these questions, you know, but it seems like he wants Adam to face the question. You know, I, th- I think sometimes God poses questions. He already obviously knows the answers to them as, a, as, an, all, as an all-knowing being, but he wants us to face the question in life sometimes. And I think sometimes questions can be that important thing that draws us out. I kind of see that as we've covered even, I think, about five or six villains so far. Mm. You get that same thing for a lot of them. It's the question, like just instantly thinking of Cain, which would be chapter four, the next chapter. Yep. Why are you so downcast? Mm -hmm. It's like God knew what was going on. Where is your brother? Yeah. All the answers God knows. It's just, again, he wants to draw it out of us. He makes us go all the way with it. He, He makes us, he gives us the opportunity to cop to it and take responsibility, but he's also giving an opportunity for us to sort of fully live with what we've done. You know, there's a, there's a confrontation in that. But what, what strikes me about these verses is just how fatherly and gentle and kind it is. Because you could just, I mean, God would have been just if he had burned Eden to the ground and left them standing naked in the ashes because of their disobedience and rebellion against him. But he doesn't do it that way. He comes to them with gentleness, with questions. He seeks them out, walking through the garden, calling out to the man. So it's, this is like, it's a very, very bittersweet couple of verses for me. I think with those questions too, how you say forces us to face it. I know in my own life when I've messed up, it's like, I'm aware that I did it, but I don't like that I did it. So then I will enter into a state of denial mm-hmm. and kind of like that. I, I want to hide myself, right? Just like that part of me, I want to hide. Like I will keep interacting and keep doing everything, but I don't want you to see that. I don't even want to see that. So it's denial. When you have those questions that bring it to the forefront, it's just like, oh, I need to face it, mm-hmm. which facing it and coming out of denial is the first step. We've, we've talked about celebrate recovery on It's just like, yeah, you got to admit that there's a problem first. And you, unless you have that admittance, you can't go to step two. Yeah. So it is, like I said, the most fatherly loving thing. Hey, this sucks, but I got to have you face what the thing is. So yeah. I'm going to ask you the question. It's a chance to return to truth. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know this as parents, you know, like, and this is, again, those moments where it shows the innocence and childlikeness of Adam and Eve. Because it's like they're the kids who stole candy and then went and hid behind the drapes and their toes are sticking out. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's almost silly um, that they thought they could hide from God. You know, it's, it's just funny that way. But we ask questions as parents all the time when we already know the answers. It's like all the evidence is there, the candy wrapper's on the floor, you're hiding it and you go, did you eat that candy? That's a perfect analogy of it all. Uh, and I have a life, real life experience with this. So uh, our kids still have to wear masks when they go to school uh-huh. and read is been infamous. I don't know where he picked it up, but he's chewing on his mask now. Oh. So like he's <laughs> chewing little holes in them and everything. I'm oh like, we got to throw this away. Like you've got to stop doing this. So I told him one day, I was like, Reed, you've got to stop chewing your mask. And he's like, okay. And he did pretty good. And then he started getting in the habit of it again. And one day I went to go pick him up and just the whole front of it was saturated, just mm. saturated. And I was like, Reed, did you bite on your mask today? Were you chewing on it? No. Your mask is wet. Why is it wet, Reed? Mm. Oh, maybe during my break, one of my friends, they, they spilled water on it. Mm. How could they spill water on your mask? Because it's on your face. Uh, and then just lie after lie. And I'm like trying, again, I know the answer. I see the mask. I know what he's doing. I can see the little chew mark in it. It was a brand new one. Yeah. And I'm constantly grilling. And eventually I was like, son, why are you lying to me? And then he did the whole breakdown crying. I'm sorry. After though, the punishment of, no more video games for today because he was really looking forward to playing video games and then the truth came out. But mm. yeah, I, I see that, that fatherly thing where I, I know the answer. I'm just, can you tell me the truth? Yeah, we're not asking for our own education. Yeah. We're asking because I want to give you an opportunity here, you know, and God is gracious and God, and God also knew that he wouldn't tell the truth or that he wouldn't, you know, God also knew that he would, that the blame game that's about to unfold would happen. He knew all that. But he still poses the question. It's, I think it's part of his gracious process of, of giving us the chance 
in in true reality to come out, not just in his foreknowledge, but in 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 the real timeline. Anyway, and then uh, Adam responds to God. He says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So you said the blame game begins and I've always heard it be presented that way, but they're also just saying what happened. It's It's just a factual presentation. Like Adam, what happened? He's like, all right, well, the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it, right? Yeah. He wasn't saying, oh, she's so horrible. She convinced me and did all this stuff. He's just like, look, I, she gave it to me and I ate it. That's yeah. what happened. Did you eat it? Yeah. Now, he could have just said yes. So he obviously brought her into it. But do we read into it the, oh, I'm bringing her into this thing with me? Or is it just a telling of what happened? Well, even when you're looking at that, the woman you gave me isn't always, you know, when I've heard people talk about this and when I've looked at it, it isn't always necessarily him blaming her. But even pointing at some back at him of like, you gave me this woman and look at she made me do it. Yeah. And I've heard it preached that way so many times that one time I was just reading through and I was like, he's literally just saying what happened. The facts, yeah. yeah. Like, does it need to be read? Well, the woman that mm-hmm. you gave me, she gave me. They're so like, no, this is what happened prior to now. It, you're right. It is a there is no lie in in what they're saying here. I mean, this is. Like you said, it's a, it's a factual presentation of the events as they are captured here in the text. But there's a, I think it's pretty clear that there is a motive of self-protection happening in that. Yes, the woman that God gave to him did give him the fruit and he ate it. But there's obviously a move, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I think it can be read to to carry this sense of, I'm not trying to deny that what happened happened. I'm trying to deny that I am at fault Mm -hmm. for what happened. And that is, it's kind of like, she started it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's a typical blame shifting. So it's not blame in the sense of like trying to pretend that what happened didn't happen. It's blame in the sense of, I'm trying to place the culpability for what happened on somebody else. And they pass it on down the line, you know? And there's a whole thing you could get into about, you know, God's command coming down through Adam to Eve, and then this lie coming up from, the, from a beast to Eve, and then ultimately to Adam. There's an interesting, like, inversion of, of the order there, but that's a whole other conversation we won't get into now. <laughs> so God says, what is this you've, you have done? And the woman blames it on the serpent. And then uh, we can talk about the, the, the curse on the serpent, and then uh, maybe we can just kind of hop down. We don't need to get necessarily fully into the the curse of Eve and the curse of Adam, because that's probably not in the purview of this serpent discussion. But I think there is, you know, some important things to look at kind of in the conclusion of the chapter. But it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and your offspring and her descendant he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then he goes on and curses Eve with that curse of childbearing, her you know, desire for Adam, but his sort of rulership over her, and then Adam's curse about thorns and thistles the ground will bear, basically, you will. And there's a whole interesting conversation there about how God is, how there's still sort of this command that God has given of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Those commands are all still in play. But these curses directly relate to those commands Mm -hmm. and make the fulfillment of their purpose on the earth much more arduous and painful than it needed to be, than it otherwise would have been. Right. So there was already work, Mm -hmm. but now the work is laborious. Right. Yeah. Instead of like the earth willingly submitting to their authority and sort of bearing fruit willingly, now he's got to scrape a living out of the ground. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. Thanks, Adam. You will eat the fruit, <laughs> right? The curse of Adam that we all, that men live with to this day. And I know all pregnant story. women go, thanks, Eve. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah, and there's really no like biological reason why childbirth should be so painful. There's a whole conversation about about that and how that curse is interesting and how humans are different from the animal kingdom in that way. But going back to the serpent, you were talking about like dragon and all this stuff. This raises questions about like, did snakes like did this snake have legs? Did snakes have legs? There's, a, there's actually a really interesting discovery that was made. I think it was by a couple of researchers at, I think it's Florida State. And 
they actually found that snakes do have the genetic material for legs. And there's this gene modifier called, uh, they, these researchers named it the sonic hedgehog gene, uh, because when they, because during embryo development, when this gene switches on and triggers limb development, it causes what looks like these spines on the back that reminded these researchers of Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh So they named this after that. But there's an interesting article that I read in National Geographic a while back. I was actually writing something about this, and they discovered this gene. They found that snakes actually, in their genetic history, had legs. And in fact, they still have the capacity to grow legs. There are some pythons that actually have these tiny little claws or buds that form on the sides of their bodies. Because during embryo development, legs are beginning to grow. But this sonic hedgehog gene, this gene uh, modifier, gene enhancer, they said flickers on in embryo development for snakes and then shuts back off again. So there's literally like a genetic switch inside snakes that allows them to have legs, but it literally gets switched back off again. I'll leave that there for like the (laughs) what, like fringy thing. But it has been held by many Christians that snakes potentially had legs and this curse eliminated that. And then we find that the only species of animal that we know of that had legs, now doesn't have legs, and still has, still retains the genetic material to produce limbs, that just gets shut off. It's literally like God has gone in and gone, you get no legs now. <laughs> like, <laughs> shut off. So there's, a, there's an interesting tidbit there, but yeah. otherwise it's hard to make sense of this whole, like, on your belly you shall go if the snake was precisely um, the snake that we envision today. But then we have this weird thing between, like, oh, so it's this genus in the animal kingdom is like cursed? Because like, no, this serpent was an individual who was getting a curse. So that's where for me bringing it in and some of the stuff from, again, some scholarly stuff that I've looked at, looking at on your belly, you go the dust you will eat. When you look at serpents in other ancient cultures, you would have like in the Egyptian book of the dead, there was serpents all throughout, like, you know, they were a danger to you on the way to the underworld. And there's a lot of talk that in the underworld, you eat dust. Like that was the food of the underworld and getting cast down to the earth. If you looked at the word for earth, there being Eretz and almost like casting down into the underworld, like a curse to uh, Satan being like, yeah, mm-hmm. you're you're no longer in the heavenly realm. You're not even in this. It's just like you're becoming like the Lord of the dead kind of a thing and just bringing it to that supernatural level of stuff. It's a huge which, metaphor for what Satan has already undergone. And ultimately does undergo, yeah, for sure. So it's like layers of reading on it. Because like you said, I like to go to, okay, is there a physical explanation that we can get it? Because it is talking about snakes. But then when you get into people who are much smarter than me, kind of going like, look at the actual Hebrew words. Look mm-hmm. at how this relates to other cultures and bringing it in that, yeah, I can go a bit beyond just genetic material being switched off. Because yeah, then at that point, all snakes are on their stomach. But what about this one that we call the serpent, that we call the devil, that we call the dragon? Sorry to interrupt. Casey here with Remy. Hey, everybody. So, Remy, you've been having a problem with snakes in your garden lately, right? Yes, it's been so bad lately. Every time I go to water or pick some amazing fruits and vegetables I'm growing, there's a snake. That sounds awful. There's this new product out there called the Heel Crusher that takes care of your snake problem in the garden. Really? How does it work? And where do I get one? You set up all the sensors around your garden. When they notice a snake in your garden, the Heel Crusher takes action and crushes the head of the snake. That sounds so simple to use! It really is, and you can buy the Heel Crusher on their website, crushthatserpenthead.com for the low, low price of $19.99. What a deal! I'm going to grab one today to get those serpents out of my yard ASAP. Thanks, Casey. Anytime, Remy. Now back to the show. Well, there's there. You're totally right, and I don't think there's. I don't think this is necessarily has to be presented as an either yeah, or. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like we talked about with Adam and Eve, because of you know the time that's passed and and their position in the human story. They can be both these mythical archetypal creatures, and yet also be true yeah. true human beings. And, you know, there's, there's precedent in the Bible for God using physical things or physical creatures and interacting with them in a way that is symbolic of what he's doing at sort of the interpersonal level, or in this case with Satan. For example, the king of Tyre. He is, there, this oracle against the king of Tyre is simultaneously a lament for the king himself and for the wicked spirit behind the king of Tyre. And so you could say at the same time, like, well, who is he cursing here? And like, you know, well, it's both. 
you know? And so, you know, this, this concept of snakes once having legs and now not is perfectly consistent with, I think it's consistent with the text, but it's also consistent with sort of the MO that God, he's done that through the prophets where the prophet will become a living example of a principle. You look at, you know, look at marriage to Gomer, for example, you know, it's like you become a living uh, embodiment of the lesson that God is is teaching here. So there's yeah. there's a there's there can be a lot of layers to the conversation for sure. Which I wasn't trying to say it's not that, but it's no, just, I'm it's with even you. Even interesting. It's just like man, all snakes, huh? You just got it because of this. <laughs> well, and then you think, well, snakes are no worse for wear. You know, oh, they're yeah. still successful predators living around the world. Like they're fine. They did fine. Satan, on the other hand, is not going to be fine. You yeah. know, so it it's it's just a. And this is again why I love this passage so much because it is so rich. And spiderwebs out to so many other key biblical concepts and and elements of the story that it's just so uh, so incredible to read. Yeah, I had just on your mm-hmm. belly you'll go because that's if I was I came across this in studying about like oh going from having feet to then just on the belly, but then also if you consider a snake that when it comes up to strike right it comes up it's not on its belly, mm-hmm. so when it's being on your belly it's kind of like you're gonna lose like you're becoming docile in a sense you're gonna have mm-hmm. that which losing some of that attack prowess or what would have been there, which was kind of a cool way of looking at it that was tied to some different stuff. But then it comes to that you will strike his heel, which when I was looking at that is that basically if there was most docile snakes don't want to attack you and do that, they could still bite you. Mm-hmm. But it comes back to that venom that you were talking about. If a snake was going to strike you and strike your heel, right? You're, you're walking. There yeah. was that expectation of venom. So when you said that earlier, I was like, yeah. Most snake bites are from the knee down, yep. for sure. And of course, you know, this reference to Eve's seed or descendant, um, it's a pretty obvious reference to Jesus, who would ultimately come and wipe out uh, Satan's schemes and become his undoing. So it's a really beautiful bit of foreshadowing going on there. So there's some prophecy baked into these curses as well. But, you know, that's, uh, again, one of those examples where the thing that Satan believed would bring the downfall. And, you know, there's, there's sort of a dual purpose in the snake. The snake has a purpose in his own mind, which is to destroy the image of God on the earth and to bring low these beloved creatures that God has made and has this special relationship with. But then there's also, you know, there's Satan playing checkers and then there's God playing chess, where he's thinking about this huge future that's going to unfold and all of his ultimate redemptive plans for the world. And once again, Satan just falls right into it, you know? And he actually makes, makes possible, in some sense, because of the part he plays in the story, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to make it seem as though, you know, Satan is this, uh, you know, he's not the protagonist by any means, but there is a role that he plays. Um, we, can, we can imagine the story going differently. What if this? What if that? But this is the story that has, in fact, taken place, and this is how it's unfolding. And the serpent, in fact, plays a very, what feels like a very real purpose in God's ultimate plans, which is just fun to see. And an example, you know, we could talk about there are other examples in the Bible where Satan believed he got victory and then it came right back down on his own head again. And, you know, this bruising the heel versus the head, you know, ancient literature would, would have associated a, a wound to the head as a mortal wound. So there's this idea that the wound you will inflict on him will be a, sur- a painful but survivable one. Mm-hmm. The wound he will inflict on you will be total defeat. Um, you will be wiped out. And, I, you know, in, in Jesus, Satan probably believed that he had that bite on the heel was sufficient to bring down, uh, to bring down the Messiah. But in fact, that would turn out not to be true at all. So he, he kind of finishes the curses out. He, he, he gives the curse to Eve, the curse to Adam. And that really heartbreaking end of verse 19, mm-hmm. he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That had to be so chilling to hear. Uh, and and it's just so tragic to read, um, but gosh, just just awful, painful stuff to think of these dignified image bearers returning and rotting into dust. You know, gosh, it's such a juxtaposition of the dignity of humankind and the pitiful, the the pitiful reality that comes from the fall and our death. Now the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I don't know if we want to get into all that, but then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out with his hand and take fruit also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So it's pretty clear here that Adam and Eve die, not necessarily by the killing action of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but because they lost access to the tree of life. And they were cut off from the thing that God had intended to be the the permanent sustainer of human biological life. And it's interesting that like we always forget this, but the tree of life is at the beginning and end of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, and we read in Revelation that when when you have the new heavens and the new earth, and you know, sort of the new Jerusalem coming down and onto the earth, and you know, God dwelling with His people, and it says that from the throne flowed uh, the river of life and the the tree of life. Some translations or some commentators read it as the tree of life sort of sprawls over the river, or others say there was a tree of life growing on either side of the river. But the text tells us that the tree of life bears fruit every season and that its leaves are for the healing of the nations. So we still have this picture of in the new earth, there still is this sense that the tree of life is the means by which God continues to heal, rejuvenate, and sustain the life of his people. So the tree of life is like, in my opinion, it doesn't get a fair shake in the Bible. Like we don't recognize its prominence in the story and just how vital it is to to the ultimate human story. And Adam and Eve cut off from the tree of life. Their bodies gradually break down and, and they die. They don't die instantly, but they do die because of it. I don't know. That's about it on the serpent. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, when I think about this, because we are scoping it like the season as villains and what makes someone a villain and what makes someone mm. um, in the Bible like just have that. And when we get into this, like we could have started the season with the serpent because this lays the groundwork for all the other villains that we approach. But when you just look at him in general, the the deceit, but also the arrogance and the pride thing, that that was his formulated attack, that I'm going to bring you guys, God's created chosen creatures, to my level, and I'm going to make you want what I want. And when you want what I want, you no longer want what God wants. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's this cool story. I love the way you painted it. There was something you said in the, in the last episode that it's just been lingering in my brain since when you were talking about the idea of the notion that the Garden of Eden was put there and, and where it was at, and who knows if it could have just spread out through the chaos of the world. And then I kind of started thinking about Jesus when he said, because uh, we went over the Sermon on the Mount like crazy on season one, where he said the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. And what he was saying by that wasn't necessarily what a lot of people think of God coming back and bringing that kingdom, but you guys are now the kingdom here. You be that kingdom. Live this way that I'm preaching and spread throughout the world. Mm. And just kind of seeing the parallels between the two of like, if the garden could have spread, that would have destroyed the chaos. If we as Christians can go out and spread the gospel, that can destroy the chaos in our lives. But Mm. this serpent is a crafty enemy and villain. And I think when we take him lightly, it's easier for us to fall. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen The Devil's Advocate which will probably even be something I mentioned again when we talk about Satan himself in mm. later episodes. Have you seen that movie? Keanu Reeves, I think Al I might have seen it. Mm, no. I think I might have seen it a long time ago. Yeah, it's an old movie. If I did, I forgot. Yeah, Murdoch <laughs> forgot it because it's all holy in that. He probably didn't see it because it said devil in it. <laughs> but in there, Pacino says, and playing the role of the devil, like Pacino, who else could do that as well as oh, yeah. Pacino? But he says, uh, one of the, the greatest tricks is n- not that you know that I exist, but believing that I don't because then he can operate and move in like that hill bite right like just grasp at us at the hill like no it's not going to kill you but now you're you're tainted with that venom yeah well i think that's one of the big lessons here i mean we've we've touched on some of what i think are important lessons that we we learned from the serpent and and adam and eve's interaction i think one of like the the biggest ones and the scary ones is the serpent is still here you know the devil still lives among us and actually has a has a greater hold on this earth than he did at that time, you know? And there needs to be a vigilance in the life of every Christian to realize that there is still a tempter on this earth, and there is still an active, in fact, multiple active, personal, spiritual beings who want nothing but to destroy God's image on the earth, to wipe out and lay low his beloved creation, and to wreck your life and to hurt God by hurting you. And I think the, like you were just saying, if we live as though that's not the case, 
there's there's I guess an extreme you can go on the other side like you know the devil made me do it you know to everything I think you touched uh, Murdoch I think it was in the Kane episode where you talked about you know like one of the scariest things is that the devil doesn't always have to be there for evil to come out of us sometimes it's just we have this potential in us so there's 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 that reality but there there needs to be a knowledge that I think it's in First or Second Peter where he says you know the the devil is a roaring lion roaming mm. the earth looking for someone to devour. Which is interesting because, you know, since the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan has sort of become the, the prince of the powers of the air. He's become sort of the king or the ruler of this world in some sense. There was some, some means by which the fall of Adam and Eve resulted in, in, in Satan claiming control and claiming some rulership over this world. You know, so it's like he used to approach as the serpent. Now he sort of brazenly walks around as the lion looking for someone to devour. And, and we shouldn't take his presence on the earth lightly or ignore that. So I think there's a there's a lesson in that as well. I, I I think one of the other lessons that we've touched on a bunch is that what Satan intends to destroy you, God can use for good. And the things that often the things that have hurt you most in life or have brought you the most pain or or have in the past brought the most destruction down on you may also be the things that God the very things God uses to bring about his redempt, his redemptive purposes in your life and in the lives of others as well. That those broken pieces from your past will often be the things that enable you to serve God best and to, like you said, to spread his kingdom within our spheres of influence. Kind of tying both of you guys. When I look at in the garden, right, the what was given to Adam and Eve was be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, you know, take authority and, and rule over it. That was the same wording that was given to the priests when the temple was there that you know there's the same subduing and everything going on there which inside of the temple it was a garden of eden it was supposed to look like god's garden oh i'm so glad you brought that up and then when yeah. you get to the new testament towards like yeah god isn't in that temple god is within each of us we are the temple and we are going out to spread the kingdom and to do that mm. and to just take that the, the mandate to mankind has been the same wherever the like the garden wherever the temple wherever god's presence is is like we are supposed to take that out into the world that we're supposed to bring his ordering into the chaos. We're supposed to bring his peace into the chaos. <laughs> yeah. That word is on my mind. Um, but in doing that, especially as we're talking about the serpent, for me, what makes a serpent different than every other villain that we've looked at, and Doug, you brought this up in so many points, is that for me, looking at the other villains, they're all, you could almost look at, they became villains because of what the serpent had did, right? You've got your hurts, your habits, your hangouts, other people, the circumstance, everything coming from like, yeah, I could see how living in this earth can screw you up and turn you into a villain. Yeah. But when you look at the serpent, just the straight up and who knows the purposes behind it. Maybe it was because he wanted dominion over this earth and thought that he could have it. Maybe it wasn't like, I'm going to dethrone God, but it was like, cool, I'm going to take care of this. I think that is exactly what Yeah, is. so within that, but just to look at something so innocent and so good and want to break it and destroy it. Mm -hmm. And for us to see that in the garden and everything that we've just talked about and to really take it to heart, like you were saying that, yeah, when I look at human villains or people that are going through stuff, I have the, oh, there's like, let me reach out and hopefully the redemptive qualities of God. Cause like I've been hurt in those ways or I can understand your hurt. And like my mm -hmm. enemies aren't anybody who's a human here on this earth, you know, just like, I want you to experience God's love like I have and right. that we could love each other. But when it comes to the serpent, I think it's uh, Sun Tzu, like the art of war. It's like, don't underestimate your enemy. Mm -hmm. Like This dude doesn't have that. It's like, wherever possible, we'll destroy you. Mm -hmm. Like, And when it comes to the thing of just temptation, and we've talked about it, just the temptation that can start with a thought in your mind and then it grows. Like We don't get to choose the consequence and the outcome of like going into that temptation and coming outside of God. And there's so much in scripture that God is like, come to me, I'll be your fortress. I'll be your victor. I'll go out before you. If you submit to me, then you can resist the devil and he'll flee. There's so much protection in God that when we walk on this earth, we can just one of the amazing things about the gospel is that Jesus, he died on the cross to forgive us, to cleanse us, that we could have that restored relationship with God in the sense that we can walk with him and that serpent that wants to come can't come in. Yeah. I mean, we can choose to go out and like screw up, but yeah, and but he, yeah, he's always there prowling around, roaring around, trying to just like destroy. Like just an absolute, absolute evil agent of pain and chaos. Jesus captures it so perfectly in John 10, 10, 
The thief comes to steal, mm-hmm. kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life to the full. And that is the truth that counteracts the the lie of the serpent. And and I maybe that's the last the last lesson that I can think about of it is if we as Christians or just as people think we can enhance our lives by disobeying God's commands, we're we're on the road to disaster. And the second we stop believing that God is the source of full and abundant life and start believing that we can claim that life for ourselves by our own means, we're in, we're in, in really, really tricky waters. You know? So I think a lesson for us is when in doubt, just remain obedient to God. He yeah. will give you good things as your good father in his good time. But when you try to take them at the wrong time, the wrong place, in the wrong way or to the wrong extent, then you are, you're, you're flirting with disaster. That's a really good point. I, I do want to bring up one more thing and then we can wrap up this episode. But I, I liked when you said that his goal was to destroy the image of God. Mm. And that just ties this whole thing in together when we go into like the creation of man. They were made in the image of God, that were made in that image. He's not trying to come in here and necessarily destroy God. He's trying to remove the image of God from this world. And how does he do it with tempting us to do things, to making us react in our own flesh, our own desires, by making us want to hate each other, by making us attacking or, or just everything that goes on in this earth, the, the chaos and the craziness that when we allow our flesh to take over, jealousy, not being content, all these things, they take over and that's us destroying the image. But it's the serpent or the Satan, the enemy, who comes in, this villain who's coming in and putting in the temptation to destroy the image of God, which is us, his people here. Right. And like you said, how do you combat that? Because there's always a solution, just staying obedient. In football, they used to have a saying, when in doubt, fire out, Hmm. which basically meant if you don't know what you're doing, do something to protect yourself. Hmm. Put up the block, just fire out and block somebody. And I always like that and tying it into what you said, like when in doubt, just be obedient. Just protect yourself. If you don't know, if temptation is coming in and you're doubting whether God's good or doubting his, what he has for you, protect your heart and block mm-hmm. it so that the way the enemy can't come in and, and take you down for that. And get help. Yeah. Yeah. Get, talk to somebody else. You know, you need, you need other believers to, to build you up. Have, on the, that image of God thing, have, have you guys looked at some of the scholarly work on the idea of man in the image of God sort of mimicking the erecting of statues for kings, mm-hmm. like victorious kings. And so there's like, it, it is kind of mysterious, like in what way, like Satan gained authority in this world by bringing down the human beings. But if you, if you do picture the image of God on the earth in the, in the form of these human creatures, and you kind of imagine them in, in the sense of like, this is God's world that God made, he is king, and yet he, ha- he has placed these figures on the earth who just as a, a king in, in an empire in ancient times would place statues of himself throughout the realms of his kingdom as sort of these symbols or embodiments of his authority and the delegated authority of those he has placed in those places. But, you know, it's kind of like the, if you were a, a kingdom who declared war on an existing kingdom, the first thing you would do as you move through and conquer territory would be tear down those statues, mm. tear down every symbol of the, of the legitimate ruler, of the previous ruler. So there's, there are some interesting parallels there, there around. So when we think about destroying the image of God on the earth, you know, these human beings are a constant reminder of the real king of that earth. And you can see why Satan, who's this bitter, proud rage monster who's already gone to war, would, would seek to do just that. But no, this is, it's all really interesting stuff. Murdoch, you got anything else? Not without launching us into episode three. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Well, you're don't, talking about that image don't thing. Tempt. I'm like, I'm like really good because that was some good stuff. That image thing of like the enemy coming in and destroying that all makes sense. Even when we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, put up that big old gold image of himself, and it was like, this is my decree of this is my land, and that's us. We are God's decree here. And of course, mm. the enemy's coming in and raging through and wanting to tackle all that stuff. So, all right, yeah, fine. Okay. So. <laughs> If you look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 leading into it, uh, I got this from John Walton. You can go read his his stuff. But looking at the language there being similar to other ancient Near Eastern language about that the creation of the earth was similar to the creation of the temple. Cosmic that, temple theology. And then yeah. at the end of it, when he creates man in there and breathes life into it, that we are the icon, the image of God. So yeah, when you're coming and having the 
the devil come in and tear down that icon, tear down that. We see that throughout the Old Testament, right? There's like Dagon and like the statue falling over and all that stuff. But then we come to Christ being the image of God and then restoring that and placing his spirit. Again, the the spirit of Christ in us is the hope of glory, is restoring that image. And I just wanted to touch on with the serpent being the liar. We have the first lie here, the first temptation here. Mm living on this earth, even being raised in Christian households, there have been so many lies told to us about who we are, about who God is. Is it the one of the really cool things to get a hold of is letting God tell you who you are mm-hmm. in being his image, that that's truly who we're created to be. Like it doesn't matter the failures that we've had. It doesn't matter like any of the stuff that's come on. Is it to God and through Christ on the cross and the resurrection, one of the goals of that is is to restore the image in us. Mm. They're like, yeah, I'm sure that I've shared bits and pieces of my testimony on this. But it's like, yeah, at a point, I was just like, yeah, I am a completely lying, manipulative, adulterous, drug dealing, like all of this stuff. Mm. And like, that's who I am. And there's no way out of it, except not any of those things today. Mm. Right. And now people look at me and it's like, I can't believe that was your life because you are an honest guy and you love your wife and there's all of these things. It's like, yeah, that's the image of God through me. It's not me. It's like his spirit in there working its way out. So when we look at Adam and Eve and just kind of what was lost there, and we look at Jesus coming and what's redeemed and restored there, like let's not listen to the lies. The serpent's still coming around wants to bite us, but like you were saying, that bite that comes in is that hey, did God really say, or was this really the thing? And then the venom works from there. So, yeah. Mm, that's great. I think that's a great way to end, man. I don't have anything to add to that. All right, let's wrap this one up. That was good. That was good stuff. This was a lot of fun, Doug. Thanks for coming on and doing this again with us. Thanks yeah, for thanks. having me, man. Anytime. And actually doing it, being here with Murdoch this time. Was yeah, that was a room. pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm Chris. I'm your Doug. I'm Doug. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>